This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast. Our special guest today Oh, and I've been wanting to talk to this person for a long time. So if you see me on the YouTube shaking, it's because I'm shaking. Actually, I got goosebumps here. Matt Boyle. Matt, I can't believe that I finally got you on this show. That's quite an introduction. Nice to meet you, Bill. <laughs> All right, Matt. Uh, where are you, where are you uh, coming to us from today? How else do you say that? Every time I ask that question, Eric, every time I ask that question, I feel like I'm saying it wrong. Where are you where are you coming from today? There's something weird about that. But anyway, Matt understands what I'm asking, so I know what you mean. Uh, so I'm based just out of London, uh, outside of London in uh, uh, Surrey. So uh, it's still in Greater London, but not in London. If that makes any sense. Not it. Okay, so just outside the the city bounds or whatever that is. Yeah, so there's like the city of London, and then we have like the tube network, which I think most of us deem as like Greater London. As long as you're on the tube network, you count as London for. So what is that? One, two, three. You're not like as far out as Wembley, isn't that like a three or something? Yeah, it actually goes all the way out to Zone Six. I'm on oh, Zone. Th- I'm, I'm Zone Three, I believe, but I'm you're south. So okay. Wembley's in the north. I'm in the south. Yeah. Eric is almost impressed that I knew a little bit about zones. I'm impressed. Now. I'm very impressed. <laughs> I hardly travel outside of zone one, right? So, so, uh, so that's, I've been to Wembley though. I saw an NFL football game there, uh, I don't know, five years back. So Wembley was actually impressive. The way they got rid of all of those people, the, the, um, the two would just show up. I don't know, thousand people would get on. And before, like right after it left, the next one came in. Super impressive, super impressive. Wembley's a is a really cool arena. It's uh and, and NFL um has become more and more popular in, in London too. They I think they do four games a year here now and I, I think they sell them out every time. People come from all over to go and watch it. It's really cool. And it's wild because like you know, I'm a Miami Dolphin fan I'm from Miami and you're there and you see every team represented. So there are jerseys like every team. And I started going up to people and asked them why this team? Like like why you were and it was like this was the first team I saw on TV when we started watching. So they like got an affinity to that. Though the Raiders always had a lot of people because their uniform is cool. Like it's black and it looks um, like a warrior. So I think a lot of people gravitate. Are they based in Las Vegas? Is that the Raiders? Now they are. But back, back in the day, they were in Oakland, California, which was a fairly tough neighborhood to begin with. Um, so they always had that tough persona. Like like Miami has the Dolphins. Like nobody wants to be a Dolphin. Right? So you don't see any Miami uh, jerseys around. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So look, Matt, this, this podcast is about you. I, I want to kind of get a sense of your journey through tech and all the things you've done. But before we start that, uh, give everybody a couple minutes on what you're doing right now today. Sure. So I currently work at Cloudflare. I'm an engineering manager in an organization called uh, Engineering Productivity and Planning. So our team's goal is to make tools that makes it easy for other engineers to be as productive as possible. 
Um, also to solve cross-cutting concerns. So if there's uh, things that lots of different engineering teams are solving in different ways, we'll try and centralize that problem and solve it for them in the best way possible, all with the goal of making it easy for people to uh, build the right things in the right way uh, and to kind of move at pace without, uh, you know, the old Facebook mantra of move fast and break things. Uh, Our goal is like move fast without breaking things. I think we can have both and that's what our team aims to do. So like, the organization is your customer in, in this role here. Exactly. Our customers are other engineering teams, for sure. That's an interesting sort of role. Are you, is, do you enjoy that? Not, it's like I never enjoyed when I was in IT shops, because this is the only time I've kind of heard of this, right? Where your customers are like employees and internal people. And I always, I don't know, I never liked that. I always liked the idea of somebody outside the company being my sort of customer how do you feel about that kind of role and that that customer i personally love it so my team doesn't have a product manager so i guess by proxy you know i'm, I'm the product manager we kind of share it as a responsibility between between the other engineers in my team too but you know whenever we see an inefficiency or we see something that a team's doing great or we think could be better you know i have direct access to all the people that i need to to quickly make a decision and potentially make a project around fixing it And so, you know, we're really empowered to go and fix those things and, you know, have access to a bunch of metrics and data so I can really track the success of projects like really granularly. So, you know, if uh, one thing that I worked on recently was um, a tool that we called Gaia. Gaia was the mother of creation and um, we built a service to help generate other services, very meta. But, you know, if you wanted to build a Go app and you wanted to put it in production, like teams were spending sort of a week or two to be able to do that and they were not necessarily um, building the best practices because they were just doing it the way they did it previously um so we made a project the the goal was to allow you to generate a go service and put it in production within 30 minutes um so you know we measured that over time and my my record is now down to seven minutes so if i'm going from having an idea that i want to put in production to having it running in production it's submitting metrics it's deploying kubernetes it's got all the network policy set up correctly uh seven minutes uh, which i think for a an organization of Cloudflare's size is really, really impressive. No, it's I trying to do that with that um, starter kit that I have, right? Like, here's everything you need. You should be able to get it up and running in Kubernetes almost instantly. It doesn't do anything, right, just yet, but it's got everything you need, like you said, the observability and the debugging and the all that stuff. So that's, I think those types of starter kits are critically important. I love your, I love your um, ultimate go service. I think it's, it's something that most ecosystems are missing because I think a lot of, um, you know, frameworks and tools that they have the hello world example. And it's like, here's how to write this and here's how to connect to a database. But no one ever talks about metrics and observability and logs and how to do all these things well. And unless you are very fortunate to work for a, a big company where they get to the scale where they you know use kubernetes and have some of these problems and you get to solve them sometimes people just never get to see them and it's kind of a chicken and egg problem right you can't get hired at that company because you don't know how to do x and you don't know how to do x because that company won't hire you so having stuff like yours available where you can you know you can spin up minikube you could deploy a couple of go services and play with it just give you that experience i think is really really valuable and then you walk into the interview and at least you can have an intelligent sort of conversation around it so yeah okay i i did have this question how do you, because you were like, when we identify, when we identify, how does an internal group identify that a majority of teams are having a particular problem? Is it because you're getting called? I, explain that, because that's interesting to me. That's a great question. Um, there's a bunch of different ways. So 
Cloudflare specifically is very big on internal documentation. We have a huge wiki where everything goes. So if you're writing a specification on what you're going to build or you have an idea on how to do something, uh, internal blogging is very much encouraged. So Cloudflare is very popular for external blogging platform, but we also have an internal one. Um, so I spend a lot of time perusing that, reading what people are thinking about, what the problems are. Um, Cloudflare is very public with our incidents, again, both internally and externally. So that's something we can we can read to to figure out, you know, there was three incidents last month and all of them were caused by misconfigured network policies. Like, why is that happening? Like, let's dig into that a little bit more and I can reach out to the engineers or the engineering manager to understand, like, what they've identified as the, the reason that happened and what things can be put in place to, to make sure that doesn't happen again. Um, we have something that we call chat ops, which in our chat tool, um, we have rooms available for each service and people may ask questions in there. Um, or ask for updates or help with specific things. So we can kind of lean into that too and see how, you know, what people are struggling with, what they're finding hard, what's the lots of questions about. And then the final thing is exactly as you said, like just people are reaching out, like we need this tool or we need help with X. Um, Cloudflare plans in sort of quarterly cycles. Um, so we always, we kind of move as a company together. We have like one goal for the quarter and we all work together towards that. So there's a point in time, which is going to happen in the next couple of weeks, actually, that for next quarter, all of the engineering teams will outline exactly what they're going to be doing for the next three months. And so for someone like me, that's a really great time to jump in and read what everyone else is up to and look for cross-cutting concerns and see where, where we can jump in and help. All right. I got to ask at least one more question before we, we start this, because was this, was this group already existing when you joined Cloudflare or is this, I'm kind of curious how this group came into being because it seems like it's such a valuable team and I've never heard of anything like this before. Yeah, so I think I think other companies have something similar, but, but the kind of idea of platform engineering is, is relatively new and that's what I would call us. I'd say we're a platform team. This team did exist in some uh, some shape when I joined Cloudflare. Uh, I, actually, I joined the team, which I am now the manager for um, a few years back. We had a slightly different remit there and we were more focused on um, <laughs> the phrase we used was customer facing common abstractions, which isn't very clear. It's very abstract in itself. But the idea was, um, if you think of it as something like audit logs, every every service at Cloudflare needs to emit audit logs. So rather than every team builds an audit log system, let's build a central platform and let teams send their audit logs towards us and we'll manage that platform for them so they can focus on the business outcome and we can focus on sort of those pieces around it that are super valuable, but you don't want every team to have to build. And then... As we've kind of grown as a company, we've split that team into two. So we have another team now, which fo focuses on uh, specifically that alerting and audit lock side. And then my team uh, now focuses a little bit wider remit in terms of focusing on not just the um, common problems that engineering faces, but just some, this is kind of more a little bit of me that I'm something I'm really passionate about and I've really pushed for my team to have a remit in is that uh, engineering productivity and engineering happiness. Like I think those two things go very closely together. And so that's something that I've kind of pushed for our team to have a little bit more um, pulled into our charter than typically would have been there. So, you know, one thing Cloudflare does do really well is that if someone's excited about something or passionate about something, you can you can quite often make a case to to spend time building for it if you can uh, if you can frame it in the right way. I've heard the term platform engineering before. So, okay, now now that term can make more sense to me. Sometimes you hear these terms and you're like, I have no idea what they're talking about, but it sounds impressive. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that's cool. Okay, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna put you in the time machine here just a little bit, and I want to try to age you a little bit. So I, I'm imagining that you grew up in England. So 
grade school is a little different than what I know in the U.S., but usually around 17, 18 is when you would have that uh, option to start university. So like what year was it when you were like 17 or 18? So, so I went to university in 2011. 2011. Okay. That's a good, that's a good marker for me because that will um, give me an idea of tech and, and kind of where you are. Okay. Here we go. Are you ready? First question. Don't think too hard. Don't uh, Matt, you're already thinking too hard here. No, <laughs> I, I want that first memory you have of, doing something on a computer where like that light bulb went off or that joy uh, or you made it do something like that first memory so interestingly two came to mind the, the first one is um probably uh I, I always remember getting a really old computer and installing windows 98 on it and there was a hundred floppy disks and you had to keep taking out floppy disks and putting new ones in um and I always remember, I used to just uninstall Windows and install it again, because I just thought it seemed really cool that I could do that. Um, and it made me feel like I had was really grown up, because I, I had been pretty young at the time. But yeah, I remember I remember doing that as the first thing. I was, it's really interesting that was the first thing that came to my mind. Whose computer was this that you kept uninstalling it? Like, was it your <laughs> computer or the family computer? It was a bit of family <laughs> computer, but I don't yeah. I, I don't think, honestly, there wasn't there wasn't much engagement from my family with computers until, uh, until we were all quite a bit older, to be honest. Like... Uh, I don't remember really being in high school until anyone really showed any interest in the computer. And that's when you kind of had to start paying attention to it and getting into it, I think. But you had one in the house. So how did that computer get into the house? Yeah, I think I think it was bought for my brother is a couple of years older than me. And I think it was bought for him going to high school because we knew it would be needed. Um, and I think that he was the first real one who kind of, I guess, had tech literacy, if you will. And I was just kind of copying him and wanted to, to figure it out, too. What a way to get them back. Just uninstall Windows and hide the floppy disks and you get what you want. I have another memory, actually, which I think is, I think this is more interesting because this is the one where I think to me, it really sort of inspired me to be like, okay, I want to go and learn about this a bit more. But I remember there was a video game that I was stuck on and I couldn't find, I was, you know, looking around on supercheats.com, which was the website at the time I always used to go to to try and find help for video games. And I couldn't find an answer to my question and I remember going to a forum and like writing out in probably terrible English that you know what my problem was and where I was stuck on the game and someone else replied to me and I think that was my first sort of real sort of wow like the internet is insane like I can ask questions into a void and like people answer me back and for me that was a real wow moment I think and I think that's the one that really sort of drove me forward and I, I started hanging around on these forums and answering other people's questions and stuff um so that's the first real memory I have that was like really inspiring of like what the internet could be, I think. But do you remember how old you were at that point? Mm, I'll have been... Uh... And you had internet at home already or dial... Well, what year did you say you started university again? 2011, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So you probably, yeah, you had internet at home already and... We had dial up for a while. I definitely remember the dial up tone and, you know, someone picking up the phone and it ruining the, the connection, driving me crazy. But I don't remember I don't remember exactly when we got broadband, but we, we definitely had it before I went to high school. I remember buying the second line just for the modem at one point. Just to just to stay out of trouble with uh at that point it would have been my wife. I was married by the time I had the dial up in the house, so I had to have the second phone line. <laughs> All right, so talk to me a little bit about sort of those years before um, 
before kind of the university, were you, how much time were you really spending on computers? Were you more interested in anything else? Kind of where, what was Matt doing in his formative teenage years? Yeah, so I was listening to some of your other interviews with uh, people on this ahead of this. And, you know, all of them pretty much said that, you know, they spent tons of time programming and, and stuff ahead of going to university or taking a role. And I must admit, I'm, I'm the complete opposite. I uh, I probably shouldn't admit this, but until I started my computer science degree, I, I'm not sure convinced I knew what computer science really was. Like, I think I had misconceptions about what I was signing up for. But I was always I was always interested in computers, but from the angle of I liked video games. I spent a lot of my formative years playing a lot of video games, like me or many all nighters playing them. And I always wondered how to create them, but I didn't really take any actionable steps to do so because I, I didn't know how. Like I didn't really have a mentor or anyone kind of to look to for that sort of thing. So I spent a lot of time in my formative years playing uh, video games. Uh, I also was and still am a big reader. Um, maybe we'll get onto it in a minute, but I actually had a really hard time getting into university for computer science because I didn't actually study the right subjects. Um, to get into computer science, I think in the US too, but it's, it's kind of expected that you study maths, uh, physics, um, and something along those lines. Whereas uh, I actually studied English literature and history. Um, and so I had to actually write to universities to beg them to take me for computer science because I didn't have the correct subjects or background that they, they wanted for someone to kind of take that course. So let me, let me, let me ask it because that's interesting. So when did you realize that you were going to have a problem getting into a computer science. I mean, you have to take tests. I don't know how it works in England, right? Like in the U.S., you take your SAT, and that SAT score basically drives what universities you can go to. But I don't ever remember being isolated from one particular major or another. It was just like the score and if there was room in that college, let's say, for that program. But how did that work in England then? Yeah, so... um in the UK, there's kind of two points you can leave school. One is at 16. Um, so at 16, you have to do, uh, they, they actually changed the name now, so I'll be showing my age a little bit, but uh, they used to be called GCSEs. And these were like standardized tests that everyone's did. So I guess maybe the equivalent to SATs. And you did them across 11 subjects, which had to include English, maths, uh, science. Based on the grades you got there, you could then apply to stay a little bit longer in high school um, and do something called A-levels. Um, and A-levels, the A-levels you did and the grades you get determine what universities you can get into. So typically, A-level is the first time you have to pick, basically to specialize, you have to pick four subjects of which you have to kind of submit grades of three of them to your university for a place. And quite often the universities in the UK, for example, Oxford, uh, when I was uh, looking at universities, they'd say, uh, to study computer science, you need to have three A's. Uh, one is in maths, uh, one needs to be in physics, and then one can be one whatever you like, but you need an A in maths, you need an A in physics, and then you have to do an interview and stuff, and if you if you pass that, you'll get in. So when I was 16, I was given basically the, the choice, like pick the subjects that you uh, want to specialize in, and that will determine what universities and courses you can apply to. But I, I wasn't in a position at that point to make a decision about what I wanted to do with my future. I wasn't really aware of what jobs were out there. Um, and my school was a little old fashioned in some ways, I would say. And um, they kind of really promoted what we call the classics, you know, like the philosophy, uh, politics, economics, English literature, history, music. Um, and I, I was very good at English literature and I was always interested in history. So I, I really kind of prioritized those subjects because they were what I was good at. They were what I was interested at. So I picked to do... English literature, history, IT, um, 
at A level. We can talk about IT a little bit in a minute, but it's not computer science by any stretch. Um, so I did I did A levels in those three subjects. I, I got really good grades in them, but then they're, they're not the right subjects to study computer science because I I didn't have the maths background um, that they were looking for, and that would come back to bite me a little bit in the in the first year of university. So I find it interesting because when did you finally commit that you wanted to go into computer science? Like by the time you were done with all that testing and schooling or no so um so when i was about 17 so halfway through my a levels so one year in uh, they start to ask you about applying to university and what you're going to do next and they start hang- handing out these uh prospectuses of all the universities and all the courses they offer and the requirements and stuff like that and so i was looking through them looking for you know degrees that were interested to me and you know i looked at the english ones but it, it when you started to specialize in English and history, it didn't sound that interesting to me anymore. I didn't want to become a, an expert in the potato famine. Like it didn't, it didn't appeal to me, <laughs> but when, you know, when I read the one for computer science and it was one specific course, uh, which was, uh, it was actually computer science with artificial intelligence, which is very, very relevant today, I suppose. And that really grabbed me. It sounded so interesting. And, you know, they, um, in all the sort of adverts and the prospectus, they called out that some of their graduates had gone on to build video games and the sort of video games they built and that, that really caught my attention. Um, and so then I started looking at what the expectations were to get into some of the some of the top universities for for that degree. And I, I just didn't I didn't match the expectations at all. Like I didn't have the right I was gonna get the grades, but they weren't gonna be in the right subject. Um, and so that was a real So then what did you do? You just went into university for the the literature and said I'm gonna try to do it when I'm when I'm inside? No, I, I actually wrote letters to all the universities telling them why they should accept me anyway. Um, and it worked. It worked. Um, so uh, I think th- three of the ones uh, I, I sent a letter to, and I, I got my uh, form tutor to like vouch for it as like a, a character reference, if you will. And um, three of the universities said, we'll consider you if you if you do this sort of test, which was basically a, it was a, a logic test, if you will to see that even though I didn't have a maths background, could I figure out from first principles some of these sort of maths puzzles, if you will, that at the time seemed really strange because I didn't really understand why they were asking me these things. But um, in hindsight now, I, I definitely understand why they, what they were looking for. They were looking for that logical thinking, and it does make sense. Um, thankfully, I did okay on those exams, and it was enough to for them to consider my application. And as long as I got the grades in the subjects that I was, was studying, they, they were willing to accept me. So That's awesome. I'm one of the, yeah, so I'm one of the few. I was, think I was the only one of the only people in my um degree class who just didn't have like maths or physics as a as, a, as an a level which as i say did, did definitely bite me a little bit but um i worked hard to catch up and it all worked out in the end I, I got two questions was did somebody give you the advice to write these letters and reach out or was it just you saying i'm gonna do this because this is what i really want um i think my i think my form teacher advised it at the time so uh I don't know if you have an equivalent of a form teacher in the US. I guess you do. We have guidance counselors, if it's anything like that. It's like a registration class where we go to to, to say where we actually showed up to school today. We'd have to go in the morning. And oh, we say, they call hey, that homeroom. Okay, yeah. So it was like my homeroom uh, teacher or person, I guess, who advised me. And um, I, I don't think she thought it would work either, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> it was like a last-ditch effort sort of thing. But it, as I say, it worked out. So I, I owe her one. I mean, you must have felt that that first year must have been really hard right because you you're walking in there with you're kind of behind the moment you start because the classes are assuming already that you have this a level in 
these subjects and you haven't even seen a lot of that material to begin with yeah 100 percent. i remember the i'll always remember i, I think I, I talk about this often but i'll always remember in the first programming class we were learning java and there was this line and it said it said turtle the turtle equals new turtle and i was just staring at it and i was like what the hell does that mean how can anyone possibly understand that that does something and uh that you know there's people in the class who had built entire applications there was some that were like contracting on the side and i just felt honestly like the people talk about imposter syndrome but I, I really didn't feel like i should be there um it was awful i really hated the first i would say six to eight weeks um as i found my feet i also had to take a like a foundational math class uh to kind of try and get myself up to speed with the things that i hadn't done because in the second year of our course we kind of did a, a an advanced maths class if you will um which was like, you know, mass for computer science effectively. So they were kind of needed to get me to a certain level. So I had to do that as well, which uh, which was very tough for me because it was it had basically been, you know, two, three years at this point before I'd done any any sort of maths. And it was a lot easier than what they were asking me to do at this point. But you got through it. I mean, you, you, you I'm assuming you got through it. Did you end up graduating with a degree from that university? I did. I did. I did really well in the end. I uh, I did graduate with a degree. Uh, I got first class degree as well, which is the the highest you can get in the UK. So uh, I did really well. Um, so I think it, you know it's, it's been it's, it was a good life lesson for me. I think it's just you know you got to stick in stick in there and uh, uh, even when it's hard, just keep trying and, and you'll figure it out. And like, there's definitely there's definitely times when it was a grind. There's definitely times I wanted to quit, but I think uh, you know I'm a, I'm a better person for it. So. It, would definitely advise anyone to do the same thing you know even if you don't match the, and this applies to applying for jobs as well like if you don't match the requirements apply anyway and then follow it up with a with a message to the hiring manager explaining why you applied and like why you think even though you don't match the requirements uh, you, they should they should give you a chance and i think a lot of people appreciate that personable touch did you get to i was just talking to andre erickson he was saying like when he went to university in uh in stockholm that it was purely just kind of hedge down engineering math physics like no liberal art classes at all really did you get to do anything um from a liberal art perspective during that time to keep up your reading or your history or anything that you did enjoy i mean i'm not saying you didn't enjoy the computer science but you know what i mean stuff you enjoyed prior yeah so i, di I didn't do any formal classes or courses in it I, I carried on reading and i you know to this day i've got a pile of books just next to me here that i uh I'm always reading something. So I, I didn't take up any formal education in it because I just wanted, well, I, I needed computer science to be my 100% focus. So I, I made sure it was. Um, in hindsight, I wish I'd made more, uh, taken more advantage of the university's ability to, you know, join random classes and clubs and meet meet people who uh, like similar interests to you. I don't think there's a better time than university to do that. But I, I think I did what I needed to do to, to kind of get through it. And it did mean working a little bit harder than potentially some of my peers were. So some of those things fell fell by the wayside for a little while. Is that a four-year degree for that undergraduate degree? It's typically three years. I made it four years because I took a break between second and third year to go and work. Uh, I think I, I remember you talking to one of your other, uh, I, I can't remember the name, um, but someone else did the same thing. They they took a, a year off between second and third year and they, they went traveling for a year and went all over the place. It sounded really cool. Mine wasn't quite that exciting, but I, I took a year between second and third year to, to go and work, which actually led to my... Uh, me getting an offer to come back, which kind of kickstarted my career. So that was really positive for me. What company was this like an internship or was it a, and what company was it? What, what were you doing at this job? Yeah. So I did a year placement with General Electric, GE, uh, but based in the UK here. Um, 
it was kind of a it was an interesting job actually so i was hired as an intern into their like car leasing business and their car leasing business was building a bunch of uh, applications to like help manage the leasing and financing of those leases and stuff like that but they were just starting to uh so ge was always a big uh outsourcer they did all their development happened outside of ge and they were just starting to bring it back in-house and they were starting to learn about agile development and uh trying to figure out how all that stuff works so i got to just basically you know spend a year hanging around with you know a lot of really really smart people uh with a company with very deep pockets that was giving me a bunch of training on how you know engineering should work in the workplace and that was the first time i ever heard the word DevOps, which was in like 2014. So I think that's quite impressive, really. You know, still some companies are working towards that now, but GE was already thinking about it in 2014. And they're effectively paying me to sit in training courses, learn about it, and see how we could apply it to projects. Um, I learned a, b- a bunch. I really liked it. And as I say, it led to a, a graduate offer with them, which I took as well. So so you do, you do your year, then you go back to university to do another, to finish your degree. And now... When that degree is over, is that when you you go back to to GE? What happens there? Yeah, exactly, exactly as you said. So after the at the end of our year internship, so GE has a big year long internship class they do, and I think there was about forty or fifty of us, if I remember rightly, in the UK. And then they do an what they call an assessment center, which is like a very intense one day interview process where. You know, you have to go through all these, I think it was like six or seven different interviews where you play out different scenarios um, and uh, and stuff like that. And then they made an offer to, I think it was 12 of us, to come back full time after we finished our degrees. And I, I was fortunate enough, to, fortunate enough to be one of those 12. Um, so you had a job offer that was available to you in 12, whatever that time frame, let's just say a year from now. That's wild to me. Oh, it was amazing. Going back to university, like a lot of my peers were really stressed about finishing their degree and, you know, trying to find a job at the same time. And I, I got the the privilege, at least for a little while, of uh, of knowing that I didn't have to worry about looking for a job because I had one. All I had to do was focus on my studies. It wasn't quite that simple in the end because uh, halfway through the year, GE actually announced that it was going to uh, divest a bunch of its businesses. It was going to sell off a bunch of those businesses. And the business that I was meant to be going back to was actually one of the ones that was identified for sale. So I, I had a little bit of a uh, a scary moment there, but uh, they actually, uh, after after a little bit of back and forth, they agreed to honor my offer. So I, I did go back to, to work there, but it was to a very different job to the one I signed up for. So what was that? So you graduate, you, you have this job, but new team, new tech, where, where, where did they end up placing you? This is where I guess interesting. I actually didn't go back to what I, I didn't go back to a software job at all. So um, I ended up working for a business that was selling itself, so uh, divestiture, and I joined the divestiture IT team. So um, I actually was working with a bunch of like project managers, and um, and we were figuring out how to carve up different bits of G's business uh, to sell them, and then I got to travel to all these different places and meet potential buyers, explain the IT systems, how they work, understand their requirements for how we're going to separate them, and then to kind of go back and, and figure out how to do those things. It was a very, very, very interesting period in my life. It was super interesting, and I probably will never get to do anything like that again. I mean, you didn't really have a lot of experience about their business units and stuff. So how did you kind of come up to speed to be able to be speak intelligently at a meeting about this stuff? Uh, I'm not convinced I ever did speak intelligently. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> 
you know, I was, I was, I got to work with some really, really, really smart people, and they really took me under their wing, and you know, taught me lots of things, helped me figure out things I didn't know, and gave me way more responsibility than uh, I would have got in any other job. Like, you know, there was there was times when I was kind of directly working with and negotiating like two and a half million dollar a year agreements that were going to last for two to five years. I got to travel all around the world and meet people, and it it was a really great formative experience for me. I think um, I actually put that period in my life down to. A lot of my success because I think uh, it taught me how to communicate with people like, you know, various stakeholders of all different levels. And I think that's underrated as a skill in software engineering is like how important communication is. And I, I learned a lot about how to do that well there. But I imagine that at the time you must have been feeling like this is not what I want to do. This is not what I want to do. Like, wasn't that a recurring theme in your head? Like, yeah, it's cool. I'm traveling. I'm young. I'm, but it's not engineering, really, is it? No, not all. Um, and, and that was definitely something that entered my, my mind. But I, I think I was aware of the uniqueness of the opportunity as well. And I knew it wasn't going to last because the business was ultimately selling itself. I wasn't, I wasn't going to go with any of the businesses. So the job had a, had a um, shelf life. A life. Yeah, had a shelf life. <laughs> so I knew it was going to come to an end. So, you know, I just made the most of it while I could. I, you know, I'd say I really enjoyed the traveling. Like I got to go to all these places that I, I wasn't, I didn't travel much as a kid. So like I hadn't been very far out of the uk honestly so that was really exciting to me and i was working with people who you know my my manager was someone who'd worked in the company for 20 plus years and you know she was really generous with teaching me about everything basically she taught me tons of stuff that i i think i it would have taken me multiple years to work in other scenarios i definitely was missing engineering and i was i was tinkering on the side i've always been a tinkerer so i was always working on other stuff and one thing that G does very well is it encourages everybody to kind of network with the other business units and speak to other people. So, you know, as I knew this was coming to an end, I'd already started kind of speaking to some people in aviation, a GE aviation, um, to try and identify like when this is over to try and find a, a path to join the, uh, the software engineering team in, in GE aviation, which is ultimately what I did. So you got a job over in the aviation, which has to be, let me just say this, right? When I tell people I'm a software developer and they ask me, do you write games? I'm like, no, that's a whole nother level of engineering. Like I don't write games. I have no experience with that. So, right. And then I think about aviation and I'm like, yeah, that's a whole nother level of engineering. That's nothing compared to what I do. Plus all of the rigorous testing and certification and integrations, like tell me about if what you can tell me about like the work there, because that's highly, it had to be highly technical right? And highly also proprietary at the same time, right? I, I, I don't think I was, I was, um, I was, I wasn't working on sort of directly on the aircraft. So I can, I can talk quite freely about what I worked on. So um, I actually ended up working in, in Cincinnati. I lived in Cincinnati for a year, pretty much working for GE Aviation, which is like where their base is. Um, and I was in probably one of the, I wonder if it's one of the earliest platform teams there. And what we were building is a, is a platform as a service, uh, within GE to allow teams to spin up their own um, developer environment to enable them to, uh, similar to what I'm doing now, honestly, to build the best practices in minds like with, within GE. So we had this platform where you could you could say, you know, I want, uh, I, I'm, we're starting a new project and it would spin them up a private GitHub repo. It would um, connect them up to GE's DNS. It would put sort of like the access policies in front of it that we need. It'd give them their own Jenkins instance, which was, uh, Jenkins was cool at the time, not so much anymore. Um, and that was the first time I started to really play around with containers and Docker as well. So, um, 
you know, it, it was a really cool opportunity. Again, we were, it was a little bit more disconnected to me from where I am now in that we kind of had these list of requirements that I, to this day, I couldn't tell you where they came from about what the platform had to do. And we just spent sort of like a year building that out. And I, I kind of worked across the full stack. I spent a bunch of time writing uh, Angular, which is my first time sort of writing uh, production, if you will, front-end code, although I think a lot of people would challenge uh, my code and say it probably wasn't, shouldn't have been in production, uh, as well as kind of thinking about how to spin up services using APIs, which was just a not something I'd ever even thought about before. So it was, it was a really great place to spend, spend a year. All right. I have a bunch of questions here. First of all, you glossed over moving to the States for that. Was that exciting to you? Was that something you wanted to do is live in the state? I mean, you went to Cincinnati and no, to be nice to anybody in Cincinnati, but I mean, it's not Miami. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so were you excited about moving to the States and excited about Cincinnati and talk about that? I, I was I was at the start. So I, the way I did it was in a couple of stints. So I did, I think I did three months, then home for a month, then three months and home for a month. It was to do with the way the visas worked. That's how I had to do it. So the first time I went, I was really excited. And to be honest, I, I loved it. I loved, uh, I loved Cincinnati. I loved the work. I loved the people I got to work with. And uh, generally, I, I like the American attitude to work. Like it's very can-do, like let's support each other. Let's get this thing done. Like uh, I really enjoyed my time there. It's like very culturally... Uh, different. Um, after the after that, the second the times after that were a little bit more challenging for me. Like I I don't want to make this this podcast all political, but it was it was 2016, right? And uh, Trump election was on. Cincinnati is a swing state. I struggled with some of the perceptions and and uh, attitudes of the people I met, and I, I found it a little bit harder to integrate myself at that time. I think it was a pretty pretty tough point in uh, in America, right? Like people were very um, split on that decision. So I, I didn't enjoy it so much after that. And as a people kept asking me for my opinion and as a, as a foreigner, I didn't really want to get involved in those conversations. I just wanted to stay out of the way. So it got a little bit tougher to be there, I think. Yeah. Ohio is one of those, those um, important States where they tend to um, lean towards the winners every election, a hundred percent, but yeah. And it's an early state. So I, I could totally see that. I, I remember going, in that whole time too, when I would travel outside the U.S., everybody wanted my opinion about those things too, and I was just like, I, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> you know, like I'm not. It was it was tough. This is interesting to me because were you building this? You were doing essentially platform engineering, but was this for all the teams that worked for GE Aviation then, whatever they were doing? Exactly. Yeah, we were building it. For I think at the time I think there was a hundred thousand people at GE Aviation. It's a huge, huge, huge company, and I, I don't know how many of them were developers, but it'll have been you know in the thousands. And every every team had their own way of doing things, um, and there was lots of uh, there was like nine different ways to authenticate yourself, right? And there was a big drive to like we really need to get better at standardizing this stuff. We need to get away better at making sure we're we're leveraging our scale to learn from each other instead of just kind of spending years building stuff that already exists because we're not talking well enough. And building this platform as a service team, this platform team was our, our attempt to do that. It was, you know, if you want to build a new app, go and speak to that team or talk to their website or their API or whatever it might be, and they're going to give you the best way to do things today or the, and eventually, hopefully, the only way to do these things. Yeah, but it's hard to do that when you've got people there for, I mean, this is a company where you have people there 20, 30 years, and there's little kingdoms that end up being created so for you to walk in and say no we know best practices and you don't and you're going to change like you have to really politically be savvy to navigate those waters 
Yeah, and that's where I was very lucky because I think I think they knew that, and I think this this team that was assembled was like the Avengers of uh, GE Aviation Engineering. I think you know it was the people who were really well respected, that had lots of experience of leadership underneath their belt, and lots of architecture experience. And I just got to hang around as the newbie and listen to to how they sort of navigated some of these things. So I was very fortunate in that respect. It wasn't they, they weren't battles I had to fight. I just had to sit there with my ID and program whatever was cool that week. And I imagine that you were running your own data centers or were you running in one of the cloud environments as you're building this platform? It was both. So GE was, GE was on-prem and they'd made a decision that they were going to move pretty much 100% to AWS at the time. So a lot of the things, a lot of the things we were thinking about is how do we make it easy for people to, to migrate to AWS when they're not used to doing that? They're not used to that workflow. And then we also had a bunch of requirements, as you can imagine, about... Um, uh, you know, we've got the government's a big customer of GE, and so we had to use AWS's GovCloud, which was relatively new. Um, so we had to be, you know, thoughtful of all the considerations and concerns that come around kind of having such high-profile customers and, and important customers like that too. So uh, we were still figuring out that stuff. It took a really long time, and I think even when I left, we hadn't quite figured all that stuff out yet, to be honest. And you probably also had to basically bucket whatever this cost to the right teams right to their budgets like even though it's usually all on paper somebody wrote one check but right this team spent this much money this month this team spent I, i've seen some projects like that where the entire team's job is to make sure that every penny is uh taken out of the right bu buckets yeah that's right cost centers <laughs> left hand to right hand that's what we used to call it so how long are you with GE Aviation working on really what are the beginnings of sort of platform engineering? So I was there for around a year, I think, um, just over. I think I spent near enough a year in the US and I spent um, maybe three to six months, probably closer to three months, I think, in um, uh, GE in Cheltenham, which is uh, in, the, in the UK here. It's in the Cotswolds. Very nice, uh, uh, very nice place to live. Um, and I was working on a slightly, slightly different project in the same team there. Um, but I uh, I kind of, you know, that itch we were talking about, like I I was really interested in the startup ecosystem. And I, you know, so far all my experience had been as, you know, a giant corporate. And even though we're doing cool things, it's still, you know, I, I read stories of teams shipping software multiple times in one day. And I couldn't even imagine how that worked. Like I couldn't even see in my head like a path to do that. And I really wanted to experience that. So at that point, I kind of made a decision that I wanted to move to London. Um, I wanted to go and, uh, you know, see work for one of these small companies, be be scrappy and, and and build things fast, and see what that felt like, and see what I could learn from that environment. So that's that's ultimately what I decided to do. And that's what like 2015, 16 ish. It's probably around 2017, I think. 2017. Morning, yeah. So, how do you find the startup that you want to uh, you, you want to work for? What's that process like? Um, so to be honest, I, I really struggled to find a job because my 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 resume was a little all over the shop. Like I spent a year doing this like divestiture work, and I didn't really know how to present that on paper at the time. It certainly wasn't software engineering. And then I had some experience doing um, some of the stuff in a platform team, but I think I I think I I didn't really know how to frame it at the time because I 
what you know when i spoke to friends and asked to see their resumes like it was a lot clearer like you know i did java i learned java i did this thing i wrote a web service like i hadn't wrote any of these traditional customer facing apps so i was finding it really hard actually so i was very fortunate to have a, a good friend who uh, whose friend or maybe it was his girlfriend was a was a recruiter um she took my my resume she kind of made it look make it made it look good for me and said hey, i'll send it across to a couple of my friends and one of the people I got contacted by was um, a company called uh, Crowdcube, crowdcube.com. And I really loved what they were building. So I, I only actually interviewed for two jobs in the end. I interviewed for TransferWise, or Wise as they're called now. And I interviewed for uh, Crowdcube. I wasn't successful with TransferWise. Um, I was very naive and didn't expect the interview that they gave me. It was one of the, you know, the classic whiteboard programming interviews. Um, I did not perform well on that at all. Um, and then I spoke to this company, crowdcube.com, which um, the high level way to think of it is, uh, I think you have something in the US now, actually, I forget the name of it. But the way I like to think of it is it's like Shark Tank, but anyone can can put themselves on there. So you can be like, hey, I'm Bill, I run Arden Labs, and we're raising $1 million so we can grow to the next level. And in return for investing £10, you get uh, 1% of the company split between you know all the people that invest. And so you go on the website, you put so it's almost like crowdsourcing, the beginnings of crowd. It's exactly what it is. Crowdfunding. That's exactly okay. what it is. Yeah. So is that company still around? It is still around. Yeah. They're still, they're still around today. Um, they're very uh, UK and Europe centric for now. I think they did have some US partnerships at the time, but I think you find a lot of the uh, European and UK uh, startups, specifically fintechs, have a really good, hard time breaking into the US. It's just such a different environment from a legislative and policy standpoint that it's a real struggle to do so so i think there is a u.s equivalent i forget the name of the platform i should know it but um i don't think crowdcube ever i don't know if they ever tried to but they, they never launched there so you start that company in 2017 what, what was your primary role there are you now back to doing or you're doing software development on a team yeah so i was i was my job title was full stack engineer so uh Know, very much building everything front end to back end um but it was a very new stack to me they were the front end was all it was kind of a uh, frankenstein's monster of javascript frameworks like some angular in there a little bit of react in there some typescript uh, not the lots word, TypeScript. of jquery too. <laughs> jquery yeah jquery <laughs> you got it um and then their back end was all laravel um which is not something i'd ever worked with at all before i'm not sure um, i've heard a lot of laravel what is it's that? a php framework okay um, that's why it's very it's in hindsight it's actually a very nice php framework but uh me, me and php just what weren't and still continue not to be very good friends and I, I really struggled to uh to get into the to the mindset i think to to work on that stack so okay so what part of their solution i guess that means you were working on their consumer facing front end and or full stack how many engineers were on that team this was was this the scrappy startup you were hoping to to be a part of where you had to do almost everything yeah it was so we had um i think we had two two ios engineers we had two people who were like front end engineers specifically and only focused on the website of it um we had like three or four back end engineers and then there was uh, just me as a full stack engineer uh, because I was insistent. That was my title, I think, if I remember correctly, because I, I wanted to make sure I, I could kind of play with both sides of it and figure it out as I went. Um, we also had... So let me let me guess. Let me guess something here. Let me guess something, okay? 
you end up, I could be totally wrong, but you get, you're going to end up taking ownership of uh, product releasing and getting this thing running in AWS and all that. Do, do, do you end up being the person that's uh, responsible for deployments and all that? I don't actually. Um, we had we did have a we did have a DevOps engineer there. Um, to, like I don't know if you if you spend any time in the PHP ecosystem, but it's it's not the easiest thing to. For what it's worth, like I certainly wanted to, and I certainly wanted to get better at the build systems and the deployments. But PHP, even today, if you if you uh, if you Google like um, container image for PHP and compare it to a Go image, like they are worlds apart. Like a PHP image is. It's incredibly difficult to get running. Um, I've done training for like almost a decade, right? So the majority of the developers I've trained over the last 10 years are PHP developers. So I'm in this PHP shop, right? These are some of the most brilliant engineers that I've ever trained. Like, like brilliant, okay? They know the operating systems inside and out. In my head, PHP is a scripting language, right? So I can't comprehend this. And at the end of day three, I'm, I go to the engineers and I say, okay, I'm not trying to be mean here. I'm just trying to understand how you guys are this technical, this in tune with every layer of the stack from the hardware up. And they were like, Bill, have you ever tried to deploy a PHP app? <laughs> that was their answer to me. And I was like, no. And they're like... And that's the thing. Like, if you if you do want to be good at php and you do want to be like be able to put the tooling together like you do have to start um digging into the you know the operating system you have to start building you still have to, you have to work at a pretty low level to get it all to work and it's something i really struggled with at the time because i just didn't have the depth of experience to, to be able to do that so we uh, we actually had one of the creators of laravel working for us and that was a, a huge advantage for me because they they were really helpful and they they really tried to to teach me everything that i asked so I, was, I was very curious always asking questions and they had this they called it a dev box at the time it was built on vagrant if you remember vagrant um and that's how we were doing sort of local development but i just had tons of issues with it and i just me, me and php just never saw eye to eye i just didn't i definitely didn't see my future in that language and uh so i i didn't I didn't end up staying at Crowdcube too long because I just, uh, I, you know, I, I knew PHP wasn't the language that all the cool, sexy startups were, were using. And uh, I didn't meet, like identify with the stack. I found it really struggled to think the right way to work with that. And so it's actually there I started experimenting with, it was first Node.js and then with Go. And that's where I really found my feet and was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I like this language. This language makes sense to me. You found Go on your own like how did you discover that because they weren't using it at the shop so that we had a very very small service that was using go it was a little tiny proxy layer between the the web and the back end and um one at the head of engineering at the time rob had, had written that and uh, i was asking him questions about it and he was showing me little bits and pieces of it and i just thought it was interesting like there was there was nothing more than that it's just like this looks completely different to java this looks very different to php and some of the things he was telling me about how to write like idiomatic go was super interesting to me so that was enough to you know make it make it into my list of things to experiment with and see uh to see if it's something that i i could do something useful with and for whatever reason me, me and go have always got along like it makes sense to me <laughs> it works the same way my brain works and uh, it, it was a, it was a match made in heaven, and I've uh, so it was at that point when I started to really feel like this this makes sense to me. I actually started to look for roles that would let me use Go at work, 
uh, which was what led to my sort of next move. Right. So I guess you're there for about a year then. And yeah, perfect. You start learning Go kind of on your own on the side. And then did you start applying for jobs or you just this opportunity came sort of in front of you? So I was applying for roles, um, but then I got, I actually got really lucky that one of the companies that I knew used Go in London um, happened to uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn at, this, at the right time. Because I actually applied to work at Monzo at the time. Like Monzo were a big, big users of Go. Um, I wasn't successful in their interview process. And so I was kind of a bit glum and looking around at other opportunities. And uh, I had another fintech reach out to me called Curve. Um, and I was successful in their interview process. And they were currently undergoing a huge replatforming project to migrate away from a PHP monolith to uh, Go microservices. So that sounded perfect. That sounded like the sort of thing I should be getting involved with. And you ended up taking that job. How long were you, how long were you with that company? Because now we're talking like 2018. Yeah. So I, I was at Curve from 2018 probably to about yeah 2020. I was there for just under two years, I think. Okay, two years. So were they successful in, in migrating off of PHP? Somewhat. I think there's still PHP hanging around even today. But um, as a company and as, specifically in engineering, like, I don't think there was a better way I could have spent two years. Um, like when I joined the company, there was, I think, 30 people. When I left, there was about 250. I joined as a mid-level engineer. By the time I left, I was a lead engineer with, I think I had like, at one point I had like 20 people in my team. Like the career growth I experienced in that time was ridiculous. It was absolutely crazy. And it was the high growth, fast paced, scrappy style that I wanted. It, it was it was exactly what I wanted at the time. When I first was told I was going to have direct reports, I was kind of excited about it because I felt like when I'm moving up in my career. But that excitement ended fairly quickly because I just, as you as you know, so... Were you excited in the beginnings of having to manage people? Did that excitement stay with you? Did it become a drag? Like for me, I just didn't want to do it. It was really exciting to start with. And to, then I realized, you know, probably the same as what you realized is like um, the impact it has on your ability to actually develop, to, you know, it diminishes it massively. And by develop, I mean program. Um, but also it's a lot more responsibility than I think I naively expected. You know, like all these people are looking to you for advice and for, um, you know, you've got to be their advocate too for promotions, help them like grow as engineers and make cases for them and, and things like that. And, you know, I was only, how old am I here? Like 20, 26, 27. Some of the people in my team were double my age and I just did not feel qualified to give them advice. Like I, I wasn't qualified to give them advice. Like they'd, seen and done way more than I ever would. And I, I think that was a good thing. It was a blessing in disguise because at the time I really struggled with it. But then I kind of began to realize that as a manager, your job isn't to know everything. It's to, to you know, really lean into and leverage your team strength to, to, to drive outcomes. And once I started to realize that, things made a little bit more sense. Um, I think one of the challenges I had, and it's actually one of the reasons that kind of I ultimately probably left Curve is, I, d I didn't feel that I could adequately do both parts of my job. I couldn't be a manager and a lead engineer. Like it was too much. And, um, you know, I was, I was starting to get really, uh, exhausted. Just, I was, I was spending probably 12 to 18 hours a day working. Wouldn't be an exaggeration. And I include weekends in that. I'll always remember, um, working at midnight on Christmas Eve because, uh, we had this ledger 
that was you know it maintained customers balance um balances and it, it wasn't it wasn't adding up correctly it wasn't giving the right answers when people were as adding to their balances and obviously that's critical for a fintech it needs to be correct um and like that was a real turning point for me that moment like wow this is you know this is really impacting my life um and i, I need to really start to think about what i want to do in the future and and what makes sense for me to do next so i think it was it was an awesome place to spend two years i i really advise anyone to grow and grow up you know go and join a fast-growing startup and you'll learn more i i feel like i i did 10 years worth of experience in those two years and if you add up the hours it's probably not far off honestly but um it's it's, it's it was worth it and it's it's got me to where i am today so i'll, I'll always be thankful for the time i spent there a majority of us as we're younger we put in those 50 60 hour weeks and Everything seems critical at the time. And then when you leave the job and you realize you have no more responsibility for those things, it's like now everything just seems so unimportant. And then when you look back on it, you're like, that was really foolish. I, that could have waited another day. That could have. It's definitely those. Uh, but it's hard when you're, when you're in the middle of it, it's really hard. It is. And there's always, uh, you know, I think uh, it's very easy to think you're more important than you are as well. It's like, well, I need to solve this because otherwise no one else will know how to do this or like one of my team will have to do it or, or whatnot. But as you say, that day you quit and you go and work somewhere else and the company continues to run and there's not even a, you know, there's not even a, a missed in a step in engineering. You're like, okay, like maybe I wasn't as critical as I thought I was. And I think I think all of us go through that humbling moment at some point. And I think it's essential. I think you need to, to realize that, you know, you're not irreplaceable and you need to, Especially, you know, um, for me over the last couple of years, I've had a real wake up call about like how important it is to, to look after your health and to pay attention to that too. And definitely don't put work above sort of health and family, like make sure you put those things first and then, you know, work needs to come after that. Now I have a friend who was, um, he ran a $5 billion mining company and he always said that everybody's replaceable, you know, money solves a lot of problems. So you fire anybody that you need to fire, don't worry about it. And he would rather throw extra money at the problem to get the right person in there to keep things going than to deal with the say toxic person or whatever that is. Right. So I've always kept that philosophy in my head. Everybody's replaceable and the company's not going to fold tomorrow. Somebody will step up and, and keep it running. Exactly. And you stepping down might be the opportunity someone else was waiting for. So it could be, you know, a positive thing overall for other people in the company and, and, you, and the company as a whole too, because, uh, someone else may get to have an opportunity to grow that maybe was thinking about leaving. So. So you do two years there, which puts you at what? 20 now, 2020. Yeah. 2020. That sounds about right. right. And did you have another job lined up before you left? Like what's the next thing you're going to do? Yes. The next thing for me was, uh, was Cloudflare. So this is where we just, we're just starting to go into the pandemic. Um, we're starting to make, uh, at least in Curve, we were making voluntary decisions about whether we wanted to go to the office or not. Like, uh, we were being asked to like reduce our salaries because they needed more runway. They didn't know how the next couple of years were going to play out. Like, especially as a fintech, like people were working from home. They weren't spending money. Like, our you know numbers were dropping off overnight. Um, so it seemed like a, a good time to to hang up my boots, as it were. And so um, I applied to Cloudflare, and uh, I guess the rest is history, as they say. What group did you originally apply to over there? I mean, it's a big company. Cloudflare is a big company. Don't they also quickly, like, you manage, like, one of the, what are the, like, top five companies dealing with internet traffic or something? Like, Cloudflare is big. Yeah, I think uh, 
I can't remember the exact number, but something like 20 or 30% of the internet has Cloudflare in front of it. So yeah, it's definitely one of the bigger companies. And, and it's one of the things that really attracted me about Cloudflare, honestly. There's there's not many places that you can, you know, you can work on that sort of scale. One thing I love to say to people in interviews uh, is, uh, you know, when you're building big systems, they always say to you, don't worry about edge cases. You know, don't worry about the thing that happens uh, one in a million times because it'll probably never happen. And I'm like, well, at Cloudflare, that happens three times a second. So make sure you worry about it. <laughs> we, we we were yeah because at that scale it's right the probability of happening goes up so what 100 did you feel okay so here's here's it you know when i think about cloudflare i think and the people i've met over the years that work there i think like the tech interview has to be pretty pretty difficult like in my brain like my brain says i'm gonna get really teched out if I kind of try to work over there, did you, how did you feel going into that sort of interview? I think, I think there's some misconceptions about Cloudflare. I think, I think obviously we're well known for being the, uh, like people think of Cloudflare as just a CDN, right? Or um, just like a reverse proxy that goes in front of everyone's website, but there's so much more going on within Cloudflare. And I, I would say there's probably a team for everyone here. And finding the team for you is is kind of the key bit to making sure that your skill set aligns with um, with the role you're applying for. Like for example, right now we have a role open in my my organization in my team uh, in the developer tooling team, and the skill set we'd be looking for there is someone who's uh, kind of similar experience, I guess, to me. Someone who's worked building platforms as a service, people who's run um, uh, like tooling at scale or for different engineering teams. And as part of the interview process, you're not going to get grilled about how the internet works. Uh, you're not going to get grilled about the life cycle, life cycle of a HTTP request or anything like that. They're going to be really interested in your experience, like why you're excited about developer tooling, why you're excited about Cloudflare. Um, so I, I think um, the, tech, the tech interview may surprise some people. I, I don't think it's as, as hard or as, as, as technical as some people might think. It's very similar to um, the process you may see uh, uh, like Meta or Netflix or something like that. Like a typical process would you, you be the, you meet the engineering manager for the team you're applying for. Uh, they'd ask about your experience, go through your resume. You then do like a pair programming exercise, like the leak code style. I like to call it pair programming because I actually don't care if you get the right answer. And I actually don't really care if your solution is the most efficient one. I'm more interested in how we work together and um, that you can come up with a, a good, even, even if it's pseudo code answer, so we, we've passed people through our pair programming round who haven't even wrote compilable code. So that's one thing that I, I really like to call out as being a little bit different. Um, we then do a system design. That's usually the place where people find it the hardest, um, to be honest, because you know we will dig into, I guess, first principle thinking about how these things might fail, as fail at scale, um, to make sure you can kind of think the right way about those things. And, and that's typically it. Then, then you get an offer. So... Uh, if you're engineering manager or the team you're applying for, it's relevant for you to know uh, in depth how TCP works or how the internet works. You may get grilled on those sort of things. But, you know, if you were to interview for my team or the developer tools team that I mentioned, you're probably not going to get asked in detail about those things. It's more interesting that you're passionate about Cloudflare and the specific space you're applying for. Um, however, that's that's not to say that going into it, I wasn't terrified because I didn't know this interviewing. I had the same perception as you that they were going to, asked me tons of questions about complicated things that I probably didn't know enough about at this point. So, you know, the the week before I had the first interview, I, I did a bunch of like Udemy courses, like really quickly on like networking and um, 
how CDM works and how uh, TCP works and UDP works and how a request works and all this sort of stuff. And I'm glad I did it because it gave me more insight into the business, but like none of it was particularly necessary for, for my team I was interviewing for, to be honest. I don't know if this is on purpose, it's a coincidence, or this is just kind of what you're passionate about, but every step of your journey has been in this sort of platform engineering sort of role. Is that on purpose? You really like being in this space or is this just the opportunities that have kind of come your way? It's pure luck, honestly. I, I didn't, I never set out to do this, um, but I'm a big, I'm, I'm a big believer in optimizing for opportunity, right? And uh, I think anyone who's been successful will tell you they had luck. They had lots of luck. And I think you can't, you can't make luck, but what you can do is you can increase the chances of being lucky. And the way to do that is just to, you know, take opportunities as they come up. Um, and I think I've been very fortunate that seemingly at the right time, really good opportunities came up that really aligned with my skill set, And it's allowed me to make really great career jumps that kind of got me to where I am today. Um, and then once, you know, once you're inside a company like Cloudflare or, you know, any of the big companies, like I think the sky's the limit to move around and transfer if you want to. I'm very fortunate in that I, I love what I do. But for me, the my first goal was to get in and then uh, then worry about what happens next after that. But um, I'm very fortunate that I've landed on my feet in a team that I love and working on stuff that I love. So I think uh, I'll, I'll be surprised if I moved away from platform engineering in, in any time in the future, because it seems to be where I, I always seem to end up, even if I try and avoid it. So it's obviously where I'm meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. You keep, you keep landing in this sort of space. Okay. Here's, here's an interesting question. Okay. Tell me how um, all this new AI that we've got throwing coming at us now at a million miles an hour. Uh, I, I want your thoughts on that, how it's going to improve your, uh, the work you're doing. Have you even thought about that yet? Are you nervous about it? Are you happy about it? Are you guys even playing with it yet? Give me like five minutes on, on that. Yeah, for sure. So I think, um, like, so, so personally, I, I'm, I'm very interested in this space. Um, I don't know if you sure saw, but on Twitter, but I started training a, um, uh, a model myself to be able to answer questions on Go in an opinionated manner. Because you can ask ChatGPT questions about Go, but it, it gives you sort of waffly answers that are from some of the answers might be wrong, some of them like 2009. So I was trying to train it on data that I thought was good. So for example, I really like uh, Ben Johnson's package structure. So if people ask about package structure, it should answer using the things he's wrote, because I think they're excellent. Um, if it asks a question about how to write Go, maybe I'd use your um, ultimate goal service as a, as a training corpus, because again, it's very good. Um, so I wanted to try and do that. I quickly stopped that as I spent like $150 in about 10 minutes trying to train it. I was like, okay, this is quite expensive. I don't think I can afford to fund this. Um, but to me, that's one of the really interesting applications I think we'll see going forward. Right now, everyone seems to be focusing on general intelligence, but I think there's a there is some real value in biased intelligence too, especially for learning things, like having an expert kind of train a model on... Um, on things that they think are useful and they think are valuable. You can imagine having this personal mentor that can really help you like grow your own career, but it's not giving general advice. It's giving actually, you know, it's, it's been trained by industry experts or something like that. So I think that's really interesting to me. Um, 
from a Cloudflare perspective, we've been looking at it a few different angles. Uh, there's some customer-facing stuff, which I am I guess I'm less connected to right now, but internally we're looking at it for... I, I mentioned that we have um, a wiki, which we've got basically documentation from the beginning of time on Cloudflare. So we're very interested in surfacing that and allowing people to ask questions without having to go through the wiki and be able to get answers on um, you know internal documentation and internal ways to do things, uh, trained on our own stuff and running internally too so um you know we know that the data it's been trained on is is only stuff that's kind of been blessed and came from internal so that's interesting to us we've also been looking at something that we call federated search so we have a bunch of uh different internal uh let's call them repositories of information you know we have like our our code we have uh, the wiki that i mentioned we've got chat history from 10 15 years back and uh, some other stuff too and to have like a centralized search bar think of it like google.com but for within cloudflare where employees can just kind of search uh, i don't know maybe they type in matt boyle and it gives them nine different results from different things that are relevant that may be interesting to their query from all across different cloudflare things is something else we're looking at um from a more uh, from, from the app i was talking to you about before gaia like i'm very interested in allowing people to speak to a chatbot and say i want to build a new go app and i want it to run in this country and I want it to connect to this type of database. Please, can you create me one? And I'll just go, sure, here you go, and give you back um, the generated configuration and probably a link to a repository and nothing else. So I think there's lots of applications from like a developer productivity standpoint that are really, really interesting to me. Um, I think one of the challenges we have particularly is, um, at least in my team, we don't have that skill set. Like, I don't know how to run an L, uh, you know, a large language mod model in production. Like, I don't know how to ensure that it's safe. I don't know how to deal with things like, um, what do they call them? Like hallucinations, where it thinks it knows the answer and it doesn't. And it just tells you something that's completely untrue. And that could be quite dangerous for internal uh, documentation, I think. So then you start getting into like ethical and philosophical discussion, which the, um, the artistic side of my brain you know, going back to my English literature and history is, is really interested in. And I think that's that's going to become more prevalent is, I think, uh, going forward, uh, you know, not Cloudflare, but generally every every engineer is going to, going to have to start asking themselves questions like, yeah, we can build this AI, but should we? Like, is this the right thing to do? Do we know what the guardrails are? Do we know... Um, do we know what its failure modes are? And, you know, you, you can see interviews with... Um, uh, the creators of OpenAI, and they're like, hey, we don't know exactly how it runs, and we don't know exactly what response it's going to give to a pre-computed input, and that, that's kind of scary to me, I think. And so I think that's going to be the... I, I, I'll tell you what I want, Matt. I want a quick way of dumping every memory um, in my head, all the experiences I've had in my head, the way I answer questions in my head. I want I want my entire existence into its own personal model so my grandchildren and my grandchildren's grandchildren can ask me questions, right? After I'm long gone and, and get a real sense of, I mean, imagine that. I mean, I mean that, that's a level of immortality, right? Where I could go right now, my grandfather knew all this stuff. And I, right, I could go and ask him right now, hey, grandpa, tell me about the time when you were in World War I or tell me what was going on, right? And it comes from his human experience, not just, it's like documentation somewhere. Yeah. So <laughs> there's actually a, um, a Black Mirror episode on this. Have you seen it? It's called Dead Like Me. No. You, you should watch it. You might change your mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of exploring the darker side of it. But I mean, the, the story is effectively, I think that a woman's husband dies and she makes a chat bot off of his uh, memories. 
and uh, as you can guess by the name of the program it gets quite dark so I'd, I'd recommend watching it but i think that's where it gets interesting right it's like you know part arguably part of the human existence is to die and you know for it to end so to kind of achieve these levels of immortality wasn't something that was meant to happen so should should we be trying to to achieve that i, I don't know well, i think it's interesting i think that's interesting uh and i have no doubt that this stuff's going to make our lives easier with better tooling and stuff um i just somebody said something i i read a few weeks ago and and it was kind of interesting they said if a if ai replaces a job it's because it's a job that a human really shouldn't have been doing anyway and I, I kind of connected with that, right? Because we've automated jobs away since the birth of microcomputers, I guess, in the 70s. So, right? So I, I think that's a fair thing to say, right? If 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 it's able to replace a job, it was probably shouldn't have been done by a human anyway. That's, I guess, tricky, doesn't it? Because I think I, I would agree with that notion if it didn't take away the fact that that means someone may not be able to earn a living for their family, right? And I think, unfortunately, historically, we've seen jobs be automated, removed, made more efficient by computers, but it hasn't led to more people having more free time or working less. If anything, it's led to the opposite, like expectations are higher. So if we were to automate someone's job away and they don't have a skill set or we don't have something like, you know, universal basic income or something like that to provide people with the means to provide, then... I think that could be a bad thing. And I just don't think we're prepared to answer these questions yet because I think uh, the success of, of ChatGPT specifically took us all a bit by surprise. And I think, you know, we saw with crypto that regulation trails by years probably. And I think that's my worry is that we we take a step that we can't go backwards from because we were a little bit too fast to jump into it and to apply it to all these applications without thinking of like the consequences to humans, which ultimately is what we should be optimizing for, right? Like the whole point of all of this is to hopefully ensure humans have a good life. And if we're focusing on just optimizing efficiency out of everything, but still affecting, expecting people to be happy and have fulfilling lives, I think that's where things could go a bit wrong, I think. All right, we got 15 minutes left and I need to talk to you about your book. <laughs> uh, because anybody who's ever written a book knows the labor of love that's involved in making that happen. It is, it's a really long and difficult process. and. Uh, I, you know, I applaud anybody who's able to kind of get that. How long did it take you to write, write that book? It takes me like 12 to 18 months to write a book because it's just so difficult. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. Uh, 12, 12 to 15 months, I would say. It took me from like, let's talk about it to actually being available. Yeah, 12 to 15 months, I'd say. Right. And it's... I. I in college, I pledged a fraternity and we called it the best time I never want to have again. <laughs> and it's like writing a book is, I can't say it's the best time, but it's like, I never want to have again. <laughs> I would agree with that sentiment a hundred percent. I think the the thing for me as well, I'm sure it's happened to you. Once you've written one book, you get approached by all these publishers wanting to, to write another book because you're one of the, one of the people who've proven you can actually go from idea to, um, you know, getting it out there. Um, but the thing is, I think the, the benefit of writing more than one book actually isn't isn't really there. Like after you've written one book, you get to say you're an author, you get all the kudos that comes with it. But I don't think you get the same from a second book. And you know, as as I think it was you said to me on Twitter, you, you certainly don't write a book to make money because it, it doesn't make any sense from a a financial standpoint. Your time could be spent much better doing other things. So I think it's a really cool thing to think to do. I'd really encourage anyone to do it once if there's something that's really interested about because 
it takes a willpower, perseverance, sticking to a routine for a really prolonged period of time. And it is very satisfying the first time you get that physical copy in your hands, but it certainly won't be doing it. It won't be something I'll be doing again anytime soon. It's you do it from a place of ignorance because it's the only way that you, you get going on that. Uh, Cause if you really knew what was involved, you'd never do it in a million years, but talk to me about your book. Tell me about, you're the first go book out there really talking about domain driven design. I'm happy, right? It's not another language book. We do not need another language book. <laughs> this is like new content, new subjects. Uh, so thank you for that. First of all, but talk to me about how the idea of the book came about and, and where you drew all the ideas for, for the book and the material. I've, you know, I said I'm a big reader and part of that is I spend a lot of time reading technical books too, to understand like different patterns, ways of doing things. I started life as a Java developer and, you know, Java engineers love, love a pattern uh, and software patterns. So, you know, when I was working at GE and when I was, uh, you know, even working at Crowdcube, like we were following certain sort of patterns of way to architecting software and domain driven design was something that had been thrown around a little bit, but I, I, I still wasn't a hundred percent sure what it was, like, even though I was supposedly building in it. Right. So as um, I picked up the books, the, there's a big red book and a big blue book, which are very famous. Uh, the blue book is the one that started it all. And I kind of tried to read it end to end, um, which I don't really recommend, to be honest. It's a, it's a pretty hard read. Um, but there were some sort of ideas and concepts that I took away from that that I think were really interesting. And, and they seem like common sense when you say them out loud. But, you know, to, to kind of build your software around the, um, the problem space and to model it after the real world, like makes it so much more easy to reason about. It makes it easier to work with non-technical folks and to discuss requirements and to think about how to maintain it going forward. And that really resonated with me. So, I mean, pretty much every team I've ever worked in, even whether they like, whether they know, know it or not, we've always been applying sort of domain driven design thinking. And I've always tried to shape the way we build services and microservices and even entire architectures around this sort of idea of building it around the problem space and ensuring that we can have conversations with non-technical colleagues uh, about what we're building. And as I started to uh, build more Go and get more comfortable with Go and you know work with Go at scale, I, I didn't. I realized there wasn't really any books kind of discussing how to do this for Go because domain-driven design, at least the books that I'd read, were really focused on object-oriented principles. And uh, Go is not a, an OOP language. Lots of people try and make it one, but it isn't. And you got to think a little bit differently. And so a lot of the things that I was trying to do that worked in Java weren't really working in Go anymore. So the book is actually just, I guess, a result of three or four years of me experimenting, trying different things, trying to find a way that, that works to kind of model some of these ideas that we, we've done in Java and in, in the Go space. And in, uh, towards the end of the book as well, I, I talk a little bit more about doing it for distributed systems as well with a Go lean. But um, yeah, it's just three, four plus years of, of me experimenting and learning about space. I think one thing that I guess my takeaway and piece of advice for anybody like looking at any of this stuff is um, just because someone wrote a book on it or just because someone was is a leading expert on something it doesn't mean it's the only way to do things um and you know my book is my best guess my uh best ex my best advice given the experience i've had but, you know like you should take it as a starting point and experiment with it and try your own different ways to do things that match the patterns um and i, I would kind of give that advice to working with anything like if you look at bill's ultimate go service and you're like mm, i don't really like how he's done that like experiment with it and then make a PR because I bet Bill would love to see it. Like we all of us are just trying to figure this stuff out too. So um 
Yeah, I'm using domain-driven design in that service, and it's taken me four years to get it to that level. And, right, because it's one thing to just say, I think this is, it's another thing then to try to build. It's working on a client project for the last year. It's really helped solidify those ideas. But one of the things I have to tell students all the time is, this is only as good as, as, is as disciplined as you are. In other words, you really have to be disciplined in separating these domains and keeping those separations. It's so easy to just decide that I'm going to do this this way right now because it's easier to, to get me out of this, say, jam, instead of saying, let me stay disciplined in my layers. Let me stay disciplined in my domains. Let me stay disciplined in, in the things that I'm doing. Because I catch myself. If it wasn't for my team every once in a while, you'd be like, Bill, you, you can't do that. Why not? This is No, stay disciplined. <laughs> and that's the thing as well is uh, a lot of people you know i got a couple of emails of people like how do i convince my team to follow domain driven design like we're building a new service i want to do it that way like how do i how do i convince them to do it and um, my advice is don't you know like um the best use of tools and practices comes from when you you feel a pain and you sometimes you do have to feel that pain before you can can convince people that it's worth investing the time in the slower process this more structured process and I think it's it's important that teams do discover that on their own. So, you know, if you're working with a bunch of experienced people, you might be able to say things like, hey, uh, is everyone okay if we use Mongo for this? And everyone's like, yeah, that's fine. Because in their head, you can see them making the mental jumps to see how you got there. But if you're working with people and it's their first job, or maybe uh, they don't have experience, or maybe just a small team of a couple of people, it might not be worth investing all this time to follow these like structured patterns. And that's totally okay too. Yeah, but you got to at least have some form of a initial architecture and design philosophy that drive some guidelines or you'll have a complete mess, right? So again, that's kind of why I like the starter kits because it's just like, I'm giving you a place to start. Here's a general philosophy, here's a general architecture. The more disciplined you'll stay, I think the cleaner you'll be, but sometimes you got a time constraint and you got to get that thing done and you can't start doing what you really need to do because at that point the product's not in production and then everything else was a waste of time. Which is why starter kits like yours are so valuable, I think, because if you don't know where to start, it's just like, well, I think Bill knows what he's talking about. Let's just do what he says and let's see if we end up in a bad place. And, you know, chances are you're not going to. It's much better than starting in a place of, I don't know what we're doing. Let's just put everything in main.go and hope for the best. Um, here's, you know, here's a basic structure. Let's try and stick to it and see what what Bill was thinking. And then as you start to move through your project, you're like, oh, it actually clicks. I understand why we did this now because I just it's just prevented me from having this import cycle problem or something like that. Um, so that's really valuable. I think, uh, I think sometimes you do need to fail on your own. You need to learn, but um, especially if you're building something for a client, you've got a time limit, you're building for production, like using these starter templates, using these patterns um, and kind of leaning on people who've uh, walked the road before you, if you will, is, is always a, a really great place to start and you can't go too far wrong. But writing this stuff down like you did is, you know, I've started trying to write the ultimate service class that I teach in written form. And um, this isn't like teaching language syntax, man. And so, whew, I mean, people want this in written form. It is, it is complicated to kind of write it down. So the fact that you even got through that to me was super impressive. I appreciate that. It probably makes more sense now I've explained my background and where I came from a little bit, why uh, writing a book was appealing and potentially why, uh, uh, hopefully it's uh, it's an okay book and uh, makes sense. Brilliant. 
All right. We are pretty much out of time. Matt, thanks so much for hanging out with us here for just about an hour and a half. If anybody listening to the show wants to reach out to you, what's the best way? And we'll put this in the show notes too. Yeah, awesome. So you can find me on Twitter. I, uh, I, love, I love Twitter. That's where me and Bill met. So you can come hang out there with us. Um, I'm at Matt James Boyle on Twitter. I think I'm at Matthew James Boyle on GitHub. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you all. All right. So this is Matt and Bill signing off from the Arn Labs podcast and hope to see everybody again real soon.